Hey, Caleb. Got nothing up there at the minute. Oh, there it is. Um, so the we're kind of beginning properly in Isaiah now. Last week was an introduction. Uh, we're going to be going through Isaiah one phrase at a time. Uh, but each week, the phrase that we think about, we'll, we'll think about it a little bit in context of the what's going on in the book. Uh, but then also just want to give you the simplicity of one phrase that you can carry with you into your week. Uh, and the phrase we're going to look at this morning is from Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, and this is, I actually didn't write down what verse it is. It's in verse 18. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And you can have a little peek at the screen at the back just to get a little image of snow. Uh, to sort of, it's, it's very visual imagery from Isaiah. Uh, this image of being, being as white as snow. Um, that's the phrase I'd love you to carry with you into your week and ponder it and chew over it and meditate on it uh, and see what comes to light for you as you reflect uh, on that phrase. Uh, but I want to think with you a little bit about the context of Isaiah chapter 1. We're, we're not going to think this week about Isaiah the man, Isaiah the prophet. We'll talk about him a wee bit next week. And we're not going to talk so much about the historical context just yet. But again, we'll get to that next week. But I want to look at some of the themes that come out in this opening chapter. Um, I wonder if you've begun your own adventure with Isaiah, and I know lots of you have. Um, my favorite story from this week was someone who was on their exercise bike listening to Isaiah. So uh, you can see if you can top that next week and tell me the most creative ways that you've been engaging with Isaiah. Um, but if you've begun Isaiah, I wonder how you found the beginning of the book. Um, I think it's fair to say it's not a book that begins gently. Um, it kind of comes out of the blocks with a lot of thunder. Um, uh, at the very beginning of the book, God calls heaven and earth as witnesses. It's kind of a, a courtroom setting. And God calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses. And then he starts to name the ways his people have rebelled against them. Uh, and it's quite an extraordinary list. And I just, I want to just name some of the language that's used in, in Isaiah 1 to describe the sin of God's people. So here's a few phrases. I've lost power. My, that doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. You can't see that anyway. Um, here's some of the language used to describe their sin. Um, God says their guilt is great. They have forsaken God. They have spurned God. They've turned their backs on God. He says they are like Sodom and Gomorrah, which, as you may know, those cities were kind of a byword for every kind of bad behavior. Um, he says their hands are full of blood. He says their deeds are evil. He says their sins are like scarlet in our, our key phrase. He says the faithful city has become a prostitute. He talks about murderers and rebels and thieves, right? So how about that for a, a beginning to the book? Uh, God calls the heavens and the earth, and then he names these ways in which his people have rebelled. Um, perhaps for me, the most poignant image um, is right at the beginning when God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And so... This is deeply personal for God. He is a parent 
with a broken heart. I reared children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And actually, just as a sidebar, someone told me this week as they started to read Isaiah, they were having a particularly difficult couple of days with their kids' uh, uh, behavior being difficult. And they just found it tremendously comforting to realize that God knows what that's like (laughs) to be doing your best to bring up children and for them to go another way or rebel against you. Um, And so that was, that's maybe not the main point of Isaiah 1, but there's tremendous encouragement if you're a parent. Um, So that's a pretty stark beginning. Their sins are like scarlet and this whole litany of ways that they've rebelled. But maybe so far you and I are feeling relatively comfortable because maybe as I rattle through that list, you're thinking, these people sound awful. (laughs) Like we imagine them as completely godless and worldly and wild. And we're sitting thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely not like that. Like these people just sound like the worst. Um, But then we get to a little section in verse 11 to 15. I want to encourage you to go and read the whole chapter later on. And we get a little bit of a shock because we we start to find out that these people who are described in the terms we've just been using are also deeply religious and devout. Um, Again, let me rattle through. Here are some of the phrases God uses to describe their religious life. He talks in verse 11 about a multitude of sacrifices. So they're offering lots of animals on the altar. Uh, Many animals offered to God. Um, It says in verse 12 that they come often to God's courts. They trample God's courts. They're coming again and again uh, to the temple and to the the places of worship. Um, It says in verse 13 that they observe special holy days. New moons and Sabbaths and festivals. There's lots of days during the year that they set aside for religious uh, kind of sacred days. And it says in verse 15 that they offer many prayers. You see the repetition of many and often. that They're incredibly, impressively religious people. You would look at these people's lives and go, these people are very spiritual people. And if you're anything like me, you start to wonder... How can both of those lists describe the same people? Or to put it another way, how can the same people have these two faces? I want you just to glance at that image at the back. um, Because that's maybe a little bit of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, How can the same people be described by both those lists? They they don't seem to uh, go together. Um, And as we, we continue to read in Isaiah 1, What we then discover is that God is completely unimpressed by their religious activity. And maybe for me, this is the language that I find the the most kind of startling. As God describes how he feels about their religious activity. Let me read a few of the phrases to you. It says in verse 11, he takes no pleasure in all this activity. It says in verse 13, he can't bear it. It's not quite strong. He can't bear it. And then verse 14, it says he hates it with all his being. Like You can't really get much stronger than that. He hates it with everything that's in him. It says in verse 14, he is weary of all their religious activity. It says in verse 15, he has stopped listening. He stopped listening. 
Um, I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me, that language really stops you in your tracks. God takes no pleasure in it. He can't bear it. He hates it with all his being. He is weary of it. He has stopped listening. Um, I want to just pause on, on this point just for a second. Um, cause there's something that I find really, um, powerful at, at this point. There are many people in our culture here in Northern Ireland. Um, and you know them and I know them who have walked away from church, uh, sad or angry or wounded. And whenever you ask them why they left the church, why they walked away, I, for me, the number one answer that comes back and again and again is to do with hypocrisy, is to do with people having two faces, where in church they are shiny and respectable and devout and sound very impressive, but then in the other parts of their life, and there's all kinds of things that people might say, they are mean-spirited or critical or judgmental or um, dishonest or sexually immoral or whatever it is, but it's the two-facedness that gets the people, and people say with great feeling, I hate that. It makes me sick. Have you ever heard someone express that to you? And I want to pause on this and make sure we hear it this morning, that Isaiah chapter 1 lets us know in no uncertain terms that God hates it too. With all his being, he hates it. And it makes him weary, and it makes him sad, and it makes him angry. When there's these two faces to people who call themselves the people of God. Um, and so I want to ask the uncomfortable question this morning, and I don't, I don't want to avoid the discomfort of this chapter. Um, if God was to send his prophet to us today, if God was to send his prophet to you, um, what kinds of hypocrisy would he name in our lives? Because he names these things really specifically for uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem in the time of Isaiah. What would God say if he was to point out the ways in which you and I might have two faces? I find myself wondering if he might say something like this. He might say, I see you go to your Bible study on Tuesday night and you have this wonderful time and you come home buzzing and excited about all that you were talking about together. And then on Wednesday morning, I see you sharing in mean-spirited gossip and saying things that are dishonest but convenient and being negative and complaining and ungrateful and critical and ignoring the person who's hurting or struggling beside you. And I wonder would God say, I'm weary of your Bible studies. I'm weary of your prayer meetings and your worship events and all those things. Um, I don't want you to get the impression I'm giving you a hard time this morning. So let me say this. I wonder, because I think this gets at those of us who are preachers even more. I wonder if God might say, I see you preaching a sermon full of fine-sounding words about God and then going home and being harsh and bad-tempered with your own children. And I wonder, would God say, I'm weary of all your sermons? Um, I think one of the mistakes we make, um, language can be important, and we, we sometimes talk about our spiritual life. Do you ever hear people, people say to you, how's your spiritual life? Um, and we, I, kinda, I know what we mean by that. But I think the problem is that sometimes we can say, my spiritual life is great. 
because we're studying the book of Isaiah in church and it's really exciting. And I go to these Bible studies and I go to these prayer times and I go to these worship evenings where I feel God's presence and it's amazing. And I go on retreats and conferences where I come back inspired and I'm reading all these amazing Christian books and I want to tell you all about what's in them. What God cares about, I think what hits me as I read Isaiah 1, what God cares about is your life. <laughs> it's one life, <laughs> not, not a bit of it that we call our spiritual life or our religious life. He cares about your life, your daily life, your ordinary everyday life at home and at work and at play with your family and with your friends and with your neighbors. That's what he cares about. And so I want to encourage you this week um, to pray uh, a courageous prayer. I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where your life has become a little bit or a lot two-faced, where your religious activity is actually hiding something rotten underneath. It's a, it's a courageous prayer if you can pray it. Um, but it's a really good prayer to pray because when God shows us this stuff, it's not because he wants to make us feel bad. It's because he wants to heal what is rotten and bring it to light and bring change and bring newness in our lives. So I want to encourage you, if you can find the courage this week, to pray that prayer. Um, there's one uh, particular area of life um, which God especially cares about. And you may have noticed if you're reading Isaiah 1, um, it's repeated twice in this chapter, and it's repeated often in the book of Isaiah and often in the prophets. Um, and it's this, and again, I'll get you to have a wee look at the image at the back, which is a, a Dave Cavan special, this photograph. Um, but it's how we treat the fatherless and the widow. If you're reading Isaiah attentively, you'll notice that phrase popping up again and again. Um, whether we do something to help uh, and to act on behalf of the fatherless and the widow or not, that really matters to God. Um, the fatherless and the widow in the time of Isaiah were the most vulnerable people, the people who were the most vulnerable to injustice and oppression and violence and poverty, uh, the people who were the most isolated and lonely in that culture. And so I think it really, really matters that we ask, who are the fatherless and the widow in our community? Um, I, I want to encourage you to think about that this week. Um, who are the people who are most vulnerable, most lonely, most isolated? The people who are hurting? The people who are, who are in trouble and need help? The people who are easily missed, who easily fall through the cracks? That's the fatherless and the widow. But who is it in our neighborhood? Um, who is it in our community? Um, um, and again, I want to, I want to not water down what Isaiah says. If, if we are not as God's people looking out for those people and looking for practical ways to love and care for and help them, then our religious lives, our so-called spiritual lives will make God sick. Um, that's the strength, I think, of what Isaiah says. Do you remember the book of James in the New Testament says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. The kind of religion God loves is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself from being contaminated by the world. Um, so I know this is strong stuff this morning, 
uh, but I don't want to water it down. I, I, as I was reflecting on this, um, I heard again, as I often do, uh, songs from my youth kind of start playing in my head that my dad used to play loudly in our home and sing loudly around our home. Um, and there's a song by Don Francisco that he used to play all the time. Um, and the, the verses of that song spoke about how God is unimpressed by our religious activity and our our church buildings and our church programs and all the rest. And he sang, it doesn't matter if your sacrifice of praise is loud enough to raise the dead. It doesn't matter if you know the Bible, if it's all just in your head. The thing I need to ask you is, have you done the things I said? And here's his little summary in the chorus of those things. He said, do you love your wife for her, for your children? Are you laying down your life? And what about the others? Are you living as a servant to your sisters and your brothers? Do you make the poor man beg you for a bone? Do the widow and the orphan cry alone? That's what matters. Uh, Right off the the bat in Isaiah chapter 1, these are the things that God cares about. Have we done the things he said? So what do we do if we feel convicted by all this? Um, I know I do. Um, Isaiah gives us this very simple advice um, before we get to our key phrase for the week. Um, you can have a wee glance at that picture at the back. Um, when we get to verse 16 and 17, I kind of like the simplicity of this. Isaiah says, stop doing wrong, learn to do right. <laughs> uh, this very stark um, command and instruction. Um, stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Um, identify the things that are wrong in your life and stop doing them. Identify the good you should be doing and go and do it. Um, And I think there's something really important here. Uh, We're sometimes in a wee bit of a rush to get to the next bit, which we're going to get to in a moment, where we want to say, by the way, you can't do it. You need Jesus and you need the gospel. And we're going to get there in a moment. But there's something really important uh, about pausing here and saying, you've got to start to fight against sin and for righteousness. You've got to engage the battle. You've got to start putting one foot in front of the other and trying to put into effect what what Isaiah is saying here. Stop doing doing wrong, learn to do right. You've got to engage the battle. So the old preacher George MacDonald has a phrase that I love where he kind of says, of course we can't defeat sin in our lives by ourselves, but we can start to quarrel with it. And I, I really like that phrase. You can start to have an argument with it. You can start to go, I want to be done with this in my life. I want to get rid of it. And I want to fill my life with these good things. And you can start to engage the fight. And so I want to encourage you to think about that this week. What are the things in your life that you want to be rid of? Start to quarrel with them. Start to pick a fight with them. What are the good things that you want your life to be filled with? Start to run after those things. Start to pursue those things. Um, It's important that we engage the fight. Um, Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Um, But here's what I think you will find. Certainly it's what I've always found when I try to do this. um, Is that we can only get so far engaging that fight by ourselves. You might make some progress, but then you'll run up against your limitations. And you'll end up saying, I've got, I've kind of got rid of some bad habits, but there are some 
that I can't seem to shake. They're too deeply rooted. Or I've managed to change some of my external behavior, but my heart desires are still messed up, and I don't know how to change those. Or I, I, I can kind of manage to become a little bit better, but that's not what I want. I want to shine with all the beauty of the goodness of God and the character of Jesus, and I, I can't seem to get near that goal. And I still feel guilty and ashamed about past sin and about present sin, and I don't know what to do about that because it hangs over me. Um, I wonder, can you see, it's only when we're engaging the battle and setting out to stop doing wrong and learning to do right that we, we, we discover these things. We find that we, we can't do it uh, by ourselves. And we end up like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 saying, I don't understand the things I do because the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I want to avoid, I keep doing. And who is going to rescue me from this body of death? Right? That's a cry from the heart when you're engaging the battle and doing your best. But there's something lacking. Right? And now you and I are ready to hear our key verse for this week. What does God say as you and I are in that fight and struggling and finding that we come up against our weakness and our limitations and we keep failing? What does God say? Does he say, go and try harder, dig deeper, do better? He says this. He says, come now and let us settle the matter. That's the first thing. It's an invitation. You need to stop trying to do it yourself and you need to come to God. Come now and let's settle the matter. Bring the struggle to him. And then we hear these amazing words of promise and we land back on the phrase we began with. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. wonder, can you hear this morning, that's not something we, we can do for ourselves. That is something God does for us and in us. This is amazing grace. This is good news. This is gospel <laughs> right in the, the middle of that first chapter of Isaiah. Um, I think there are at least two layers to this promise. Um, and I, I want to encourage you to hear them both this morning. Um, it's a promise of forgiveness. So we come to God feeling guilty and ashamed of our past sins and our present sins and our two-faced hypocrisy and all the ways that we haven't lived well and haven't loved well. And we ask him for forgiveness and we hear the good news of great joy. He takes away our guilt and shame. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He declares us righteous and blameless in his sight. And although our sins were like scarlet, we become white as snow. And that forgiveness is available to every one of us this morning. If you haven't experienced it in your life, it's available right here, right now. God says, come now and let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. It's a promise of forgiveness. But I also think it's important that we don't stop there. It's also a promise of transformation. In other words, we come to God with our struggle and we say, I'm fighting against what's wrong and for what's right and I want to be a better husband and a better father and a better friend and colleague and neighbor and just a better human being, but I'm not making much progress. Could you come and help me? And again, we hear the good news of great joy. God will come and engage the battle 
on our behalf. He puts his own spirit in us and he comes and fights for us and he starts to change us from within, rooting out what is wrong, filling us with what is good and he will keep doing that work in us until we shine with all the beauty and the light of his own character, until you shine like the sun shining on the snow on a winter morning. Do you ever walk out in a winter morning and you're just dazzled by the light and the whiteness? That is what God intends to do in you. And so I think there's a double promise here of forgiveness and also of the transformation that God is going to bring in our lives. Though your sins are like scarlet, you're going to be white as snow when I'm finished with you. Uh, That is the work that God is going to do. Um, Just to finish, um, I've been thinking about this image of snow. um, And I don't know, um, do do you know whenever you look out in the morning and the world is covered in a blanket of snow like that image, and everything is kind of clean and white and beautiful. And you, you get, you just, you're so excited about snow day. We don't get it very often. That's part of the world, but you're so excited. And then do you ever look out the window at lunchtime and it looks kind of like that? Um, and everything, people have walked in the snow and cars have driven in the snow and dogs have peed in the snow. And now everything is kind of gray and slushy and a bit yuck. Um, wonder, would you agree with me, that's often how we experience life. Um, maybe we begin a week and the week looks kind of clean and unspoiled and we look at it and go, it's beautiful. And I, I'm going to walk the walk this week in holiness and righteousness and do all the things. Um, and we're full of high hopes and good intentions. But how long does it take? By Monday lunchtime, it's all a little bit grubby. Maybe there's still a few nice patches of snow here and there, but everything else looks kind of spoiled. I want to encourage you this morning. The good news is we have this invitation for every day. If you've never come to God and asked for that forgiveness and transformation, I want to encourage you. He says to you, come now. But for all of us, I want to encourage you. This is a promise we have every day when we're in the midst of life and we feel that grubbiness. The invitation is there to come and confess our sin and our two-faced hypocrisy and ask him to refresh our experience of his forgiveness and to help us believe again that he doesn't count our sin against us, that he's called us righteous and blameless, and ask him to continue his good work in our lives of rooting out the wrong and the damaged and the rotten and filling us with his own light and goodness. I don't know how many times a week I need that invitation. Come now. Let's settle the matter. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. There's forgiveness and there is all kinds of hope of transformation as God works in us by his spirit. Um, Let's pray together and then we're going to sing a song of response. Um, So let's pray.